Welcome to the Not Old Better Show. I'm your host, Paul Vogelsang, and this is episode number 433. As part of our Smithsonian Associates Art of Living series, we're speaking today to Carol Ann Lloydstanger. Carol Ann Lloydstanger is a returning guest, a Not Old Better Show favorite, and today's show is going to be all about royal family drama. Carol Ann Lloydstanger will answer the question, can a family conflict change the history of England and Europe? Well, when it's the Plantagenet family, the answer is yes. Henry VI's weakness as a medieval king led to a challenge for power, resulting in a series of battles and power grabs known as the War of the Roses. Tudor scholar Carol Ann Lloyd-Stanger joins us today and traces this tumultuous history from its earliest origins through its years of conflicts to its final result, the establishment of the most powerful family of the 16th century, the Tudors. Please join me in welcoming to the Not Old Better Show, Carol Ann Lloyd-Stanger. Carol Ann Lloyd-Stanger, thank you so much for joining us today. It is always a pleasure to talk to you, so welcome. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here with you and your listeners. We all love talking to you. You've been on the show, of course, before. Very popular. Always so popular. These subjects are, well, frankly, they're in the news a lot. We're going to get there at some point, but your upcoming presentation is uh, is on the War of the Roses. And so I wonder if you'd tell us a little bit about that upcoming presentation. It's sold out. We're going to put links up to where listeners can jump onto the wait list. Yeah. But it's a fascinating subject and a wonderful presentation coming up. So tell us a little bit about it and whet the appetite for those that want to jump on the on the wait list. Okay. Well, it is going to be a day, you know, sort of traveling through history, which is always really fun. And this time period, the Wars of the Roses, and we do make wars plural, because not only are there different battles, but different people win the crown. And it does go back and forth a little bit. We have the reign of Henry VI and then Edward IV. And then we go back to Henry VI, who retakes the throne. And then we go back to Edward IV, who retakes the throne. And so it is a confusing time of conflict And one of the things that we'll be discussing for this presentation is it's not just between two cousins or two families even. It's a much bigger exploration and questioning of what does it mean to be the king in those days? It was definitely king. What does it mean to be the king who deserves to be the king what makes a good king, and where, where should your loyalty really be focused? On the king or on the country? So some interesting questions that have some resonance today as well. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. And so when you talk about this kind of broader, it's, it's beyond maybe a family. It's beyond some of these kind of regional um, uh, issues. that's when you really refer to the plural of wars, but Mm -hmm. where does the name come from, Wars of the Roses? Oh, that's such a great question, because it was certainly not ever used at the time, and in fact, it's probably more than 100 years later that we actually see a specific reference to it. But we get the idea of it, the beginning of it, 
at the end of this period of time when Henry, Earl of Richmond, whose last name is Tudor, defeats Richard III in the Battle of Bosworth. And when Henry comes to the throne, he is determined to project and promote his legitimacy and to make it his throne. And then he marries the daughter of the Yorkist king. And so that's where we get this idea of the Tudor Rose. Now, to do this and to make this work, Henry has to do a little bit of recasting history. The Yorkist family, yes, definitely used the White Rose throughout their family history. In fact, King Edward IV has a beautiful genealogical role that he had created to prove he should be the king. That was a big thing to do, make this prove you should be the king. And it has white roses all over it. It's just beautiful. The Lancastrians do not really use red roses. And so when Henry decides on this, some historians believe that he actually goes back to some of the documents of the previous Henry VI and adds some red roses later on as if they were used by Henry VI so that he, Henry VII, can claim to unite these houses. And he puts that Tudor rose on everything. It is on stained glass windows. It is on buildings. It is in the regalia. It is in jewels. It is everywhere. And I will tell you, he is so successful that if you have the chance to see in the Tower of London, the crown jewels and the coronation robe, it is decorated with Tudor roses. So his story has lasted all this time even though he probably made it up. So <laughs> he's, he's quite, you know, in addition to this history stuff, which I love love so much, mm-hmm. I do some professional speaking as well on mm-hmm. leadership mm-hmm. communication. When you think about a brand master, Harry VII was the first and I think most successful brand master of all time. That Tudor Rose has survived all these hundreds of years and it is everywhere. <laughs> that is great. Yeah, that's yeah. this is why we love talking to you, Carol and Lloyd Sanger, because you really you really tell us the behind the scenes and the yeah. <laughs> the deeper dive. And I know I know you have this this very deep uh, expertise with the Tudor dynasty, and we're going to talk about that too. But maybe maybe give us a sense as to the wars and how they changed mm-hmm. England and Europe. Right. So one of the interesting things during this time, and it's certainly true of England and it's true of Europe as well, is that often a country is only as strong as its king. So we see some, someone like Edward III, who reigned in the 14th century for about 50 years, and he was very successful at getting everybody in the country. Now, that does not mean every single person, but that means the very powerful families who live far away from London and in a time of really no communication other than jumping on a horse and riding for hours or days to tell somebody something, he had to be able to rely on his noble up in the north. And when there is a strong king like Edward III, that works. And when there is not a strong king, it doesn't work. So we have 
Edward III is an example of a very strong king. His oldest son dies before he does, so Edward is succeeded by his grandson, Richard II, who is age 10 when he comes to the throne. So Richard II's reign is one of other people trying to seize power, and Richard never becomes a particularly powerful, successful king. And in those days, England's fortunes, both within and on the continent during the Hundred Years' War, it's not going so well because the king at home is not strong. Now, then Henry Bolingbroke takes the throne, and in another generation, we have Henry V, that great king of Agincourt. And Henry V, again, over his reign in the early 15th century, he is able to really get everybody on his side. All of the powerful nobles are on his side. He is a very strong king, and the country is also strong. And that's what we see happening once Henry V dies in 1422, and his baby son becomes king. That's when the trouble really begins, because obviously a baby can't be a strong king. And even though many of the nobles try and run the kingdom well, they're always arguing about who should be in charge. And that's what gets us to this period of the Wars of the Roses, where there are all these families vying for power, thinking they would do a better job because the king himself is not a strong ruler. And so it's just, it's, it's a consideration on so many levels of what does power mean and what does loyalty mean. And if the people up north are fighting with each other, they're not available to support the king and all of that success that Henry V had in France, all those lands are lost during the reign of his son because things are not settled at home. And when there's not a strong king at home, there is just not success abroad. It just sounds like there's, there's really – it's very difficult to do on-the-job training with royalty, <laughs> right? Yes, <laughs> it is. It is. And who knows, if Henry V had lived longer – and had established things more successfully, who knows. But one of the dangers of his being in France fighting all these wars is that he would die young, which he did. So, yeah, training up the next king, tough job. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There were women involved, too. And, and so yeah. tell us maybe a couple of the women's most more memorable stories. Well, one of the most fascinating women in this period is Marguerite of Anjou. She's a French princess. And she came over as a young teenager to marry Henry VI, who was already the king. And she realized, I think, pretty quickly that he was not a very strong leader. And she became, as time went on and as years went on, she had a son and she became really the driving force of Henry VI ongoing battle for the crown. It was she who was um, contacting various lords and various nobles. It was she who was promoting the cause. She really came to represent the determination to protect the role of king, both for her husband and especially for her young son. 
And there was a contemporary letter that said that the nobles were happy to fight for the king for the love they bore the king, but even more for the fear they had of Queen Margaret. So it's a really fascinating perspective that this woman really symbolizes the warrior during this period of time. She was French. She was very unpopular in England because she did not behave the way they expected a queen consort to behave. But she kept her family in power for much longer than it would have been in power without her. So she played a huge role. Another woman also named Margaret, that seemed to be the favorite name of the time, uh, is Margaret Balfort. And she, more than any other figure, manages to successfully play both sides of the Wars of the Roses or of this battle. She is in favor with Henry VI, and then he's replaced by Edward IV, and all of Henry VI's friends are, of course, out of favor. But somehow Margaret Beaufort manages to gain Edward IV's favor as well. And so she has friends on both sides, which serves her so well. In fact, even when Richard III takes the throne, Margaret Beaufort carries the train of his wife, Queen Anne. So she is very successful on both sides, and it is her son, Henry Tudor, who is Henry VII. So she plays both sides, makes all those connections, lays all that groundwork, while Henry Tudor himself is in exile in France. But all the relationships are there when he comes back. So both of those women play an extraordinary behind-the-scenes but totally history-changing roles. Mm-hmm. So I find the women fascinating mm-hmm. in this period of time. Powerful women, too. Yes, yes, mm-hmm. yes. Well, let's jump ahead then right into the Tudor dynasty because I know that is an area of your expertise, and I, I want to I give that a little bit of time. Tell mm-hmm. us about the Tudors and— What's so memorable? What should we learn from the Tudor dynasty? And and tell us what's so memorable about them. Well, one of the things that's quite interesting to me, I'm doing some uh, research on some of the numbers associated with the Tudors because I'm thinking of a book called Tudors by the Numbers and looking at what what do the numbers tell us? And one of the things that's very interesting to me is what the numbers tell us about women in power. So both Margaret Beaufort and Marguerite of Anjou were next to power, were the source of power, were having all kinds of influence, but they were not in power. When we come to the Tudors, for the first time, we have a crowned queen of England. Mary Tudor is the first crowned queen of England. She's not a consort. She is the queen. And her half-sister, Elizabeth, is the second. So within a fairly small dynasty, we have these two amazing women. And Elizabeth's reign, if you look at the whole Tudor dynasty, Elizabeth's reign is 41%. If you look just at the time, 41% of that dynasty is with a woman at the head. Mm. I mean, it's just extraordinary. And I think that's 
one of the reasons that the tutors do have a lot to teach us, how the women did navigate that, how Mary, for example, had to have the coronation slightly changed to make sure, and it specifically says that she has the same power as if she were a king. So she was sort of considered the king. So it's very interesting to look at that. And then, of course, some of the other characters, like Henry VIII and those six wives, we just can't get enough of that. (laughs) And in fact, there is a, a new musical I saw in London and then I was able to see in Broadway just last week. Um called Six, that's a very funny, fun-filled, not historic, uh, musical about the six wives of Henry VIII. And so, in addition to what I think we can learn and really uh, maybe increase our understanding of the time from looking at particular uh, subjects like how powerful women were, there's also just the fact that these characters, like Henry VIII or those wives, are so fascinating, it's impossible to turn away. (laughs) So it's just the gift that keeps giving. (laughs) It is fascinating. I I personally really enjoy this. As I say, I know our audience always loves hearing from you, Carol and Lloyd Stanger. So thank you for your time. You've been on before, you'll be on again, and we really appreciate your generous time and all this information about the royals. And we're going to talk again soon, but thanks for joining us today and uh, talking about the War of the Roses. Thank you. My thanks to Carol Ann Lloydstanger for joining me today, and my thanks, as always, to the Smithsonian team for all they do to support the show. My thanks to you, my dear Not Old Better Show audience, and remember, let's talk about better. The Not Old Better Show. Thanks, everybody. <laughs>